Hello, and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, where we are bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. You may recognize a different voice right now. I'm trading virtual seats with Jehan Marku this week. For those of you that don't know me, I'm David Valancourt, fairly regular speaker here, founder and CEO of the GMP Collective, and longtime fan and friend of Jehan and Nigam. We have a really exciting show. We're joined, of course, by Dr. Nigam Aurora and Dr. Jehan Marku. We've got our repeat guest, Jason Sarush, hailing from up in Seattle. And then we've got a new guest joining us this week, Darwin Millard, otherwise known as the Spock of Cannabis. Hey, Darwin, how are you doing? How's everybody doing today? I'm doing great, David. Thank you so much for having me a part of your, uh, your episode. David, it's great yeah. to finally be a participant on the show versus a moderator. So thank you. I'm looking forward to the seat change. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, Darwin, do you want to give maybe just a brief uh, introduction to the audience about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, hi, everybody. How's it going? My name's Darwin Millard, aka the Spock of Cannabis. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. Um, I specialize in mechanical and solvent-based extraction methodologies for isolating terpophenolic secondary metabolites from botanicals and have been working in the cannabis industry for the past 15 years, helping clients on every scale of extraction from a couple of grams to having designed two of the largest phytocannabinoid processing facilities in the world, uh, achieve their processing goals at the, uh, uh, I guess, at the budgetary constraints that they need to operate under. Awesome. Thanks, Darwin. Like I said, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, Jason, for those who don't know or haven't listened to previous episodes, first off, go listen to the previous episodes. Um, second off, he's a policy research associate at the Public Health Institute. Uh, prior to that, he was a cannabis product safety analyst with the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission. He's a registered dietitian uh, and has a master of science in public health from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, he's originally from California, has quite a bit of a background in restaurant and food, as well as cannabis with over a decade of experience. So it's a pleasure to have you back there, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me on, David. I'm glad I could uh, be on this first episode where Jehan isn't running the show. So this is exciting. Indeed, no, no pressure here. So, um, you know, in typical fashion, we're going to run down three sections. We'll have our popular literature section, uh, otherwise known as the non-peer-reviewed stuff. Where we're going to cover stories about establishing regulations to ensure that veterinarians can safely give all the CBD consultation to pets in their respective homo sapiens as well as another round of warning letters from the FDA to CBD companies. And then uh, a story from the front line uh, about your daily shot of ketamine-assisted therapy. Then for our rapid science conversation, we're going to talk endurance sports, cannabis, and then the degradation of cannabis flower based on a recent study published by a governmental group in Canada um, known as the National Research Council. For those of you that are in the... Um, science space and um, understand NIST, who know who NIST is, I call them the NIST of the North. And then finally, during our third and final half of the show, we'll end with a game you really don't want to miss. It's a play on two truths and a lie, where we'll challenge our guests to determine which factoid is not actually a factoid. We hope you can come play along. With that, we'll be right back with the news. Welcome back, everybody, and um, I hope you're excited for some popular literature or news. So up for our first news story, we've got an article out of the Marijuana Moment, and it's titled, Veterinarians Can Consult on Marijuana and CBD Therapy for Pets Under a Michigan Governor-Signed Bill. What's interesting about this um, at first pass is that it was built off of bipartisan support, so it was introduced last year by a Republican um, um, member of the House, Representative Mark Cannon, and then approved recently by the Democratic Governor Whitmer. So, you know, I have lots of thoughts about it, but I really want to hear the audience. Uh, maybe we'll start with Jason here. So what do you think of the fact that, you know, we had to go and pass a bill <clears throat> to state that physicians, or sorry, veterinarians, can actually consult on cannabis and CBD? 
Um, is this symbolic? Is this necessary? Um, is, it, is there public health concerns? What are your thoughts, Jason? I'd say it is totally necessary given the proliferation of self-claimed you know, cannabis or, I mean, really more recently, CBD experts. It's, it's kind of unfortunate that we have to pass a provision to allow a veterinarian to give the people bringing pets to them information about the potential treatments out there. And it's a really a fundamental step to promoting evidence-based practice when we're looking at cannabis or hemp-derived products. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, and I want to turn over to, to Jehan and put you in the seat there. Um, you, you, you give a lot of talks at the university level, um, the pharmacist level, you know, societies on the endocannabinoid system and uh, other areas. And you know, one thing that came out of this study that I, or this article that I was reading was talking about how the veterinarians overwhelmingly, I think it was about 50 percent, felt confident um, with their knowledge to be able to give this advice and information. Um, yet at the same time, they also cited the lack of you know, awareness and knowledge that they can gather from their respective societies or through veterinary school. Um, what are your thoughts there, Jehan? Do you think that um, there, there's, what do you think about the education lack thereof and, and that statement? You know, it's actually a red flag for me, and, and this may be unpopular. So first of all, I, I love it when a, a, a news source or, or so-called news source refers to a study but doesn't cite it and just cites another one of their blogs as evidence of the study and you can't really get to you know the original source you sort of have to wade through dab smoke and reflecting poles to get to it um and so let's just like suspend my disbelief on whether or not the study actually exists but you know on the one hand veterinarians feel they are knowledgeable about cannabis and pets but they've received no formal education on the subject i mean it, you know, this kind of might be, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous to wonder if this is like the Dunning-Kruger um, effect, which is like, the more people are unaware about something, the <laughs> more aware they think they are. So, you know, the more incompetent you are on the subject, the more competent you think you are. How would you know any different? Um, so as unpopular as it is, you know, we have to kind of think about these things and also think about the safety of like some of these poor animals that, you know, they can't even tell their anterior from their posterior most of the time. And, you know, veterinarians are probably at the mercy of brand ambassadors who are selling them things and exaggerating things. And, you know, if you want to see a parallel of this in the human world, like go to a pharmacy and ask your pharmacist about how the skin cream works. Like they don't really know. They just know that the skin cream meets a certain standard and then sells really well. But I have to tell you, um, you know, I'm a little concerned about the safety, um, especially with some of the recalls around pet foods and CBD products. Um, you know, if, if what you've seen about CBD product safety for humans makes you nervous, it's even a, several steps below for, for pets. And, and you know. so again, uh, I would say be careful with this information and make sure your vet has actually taken classes. You know, and, and vets are smart people. I mean, they're not just looking at a human system, they're looking at you know, dogs, cats, hamsters, horses, uh, whatever. Yeah, I actually just wanted to agree with Jehan. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that the study said that a majority of vets thought that they could speak on this topic, but I don't see any studies out there, peer-reviewed or otherwise, suggesting dosage limits for these products for animals. So for me, I just that doesn't seem like there's a there's something missing there. Veterinarians do a say that they have enough data. Super concerning because it just doesn't exist. Uh, but the other, but I think it's the interesting thing is there is that the state having to allow that they can do this, that kind of comes back to with human doctors, right? Some of them not being willing to make these recommendations because they're a part of HMOs or others that are uh, have federal grants or get federal dollars or dealing with insurance companies that don't want to deal with the repercussions because it's not federally legal. So I'm wondering if if maybe that was the reason why they had to go so far as some type of state statute, et cetera, type of thing uh, versus veterinarians feeling comfortable enough to, you know, make these recommendations on their own. Yeah. You know, Darwin, I want to ask one more follow-up question, uh, which is actually kind of sparked by, uh, I think, a recent LinkedIn comment I saw you make. And, you know, what can you say about the fact that even if they have the knowledge and education about CBD or cannabinoids, uh, the endocannabinoid system in, in uh, other mammalians, et cetera, 
um, that are not homo sapiens or us humans, you know, the, the different isomers and the safety profile of these products and the lack of literally any sort of oversight, especially in the CBD world, um, even if they're recommending CBD for pets, you know, I've seen labels where, you know, it's like, did you just print that from an old dot matrix printer and slap that on from your like kitchen? Um, is this product safe to be distributing? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think some of these minor cannabinoid products, right, is where I've been making a lot of uh, stink <laughs> on the social media networks that, you know, people are talking about, take my Delta 8 uh, or check out this crystal. It's purple or this one's pink. This I got this one clear. And while this is fascinating and, and, and awesome, uh, it takes a lot. There, there are, and you guys are better chemists than I, uh, different images of your molecules, whether that's on the X plane or the Y plane or the Z plane that look exactly the same, but aren't physiologically or toxicologically. And you could be put, saying you've got Delta-8 and it's a version of Delta-8 and there are maybe a hundred others of that and only one of them could be safe. Uh, you know, a very similar uh, over-the-counter drug we're familiar with is aspirin. Well, this, this is the case with that particular drug that there's only one version of that active ingredient which is actually safe for consumption. And there t it took studies and research to find that version of the molecule before aspirin was released as a drug. So it scares me a lot to see products with minor cannabinoids that have no data on them being pushed uh, onto the consumer market. Like, this is just like anything else, guys. It's super safe. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks for chiming in there, Darwin. I, uh, there's so much to unpack there. So, we'll, but we'll, we'll switch back to Jason. I know you had a couple of other uh, thoughts there. Um, where do you want to chime in, round out? So I just wanted to say, echo some of what Jahan and Darwin said, which is that you know the hemp-derived product industry in the United States is not necessarily where it needs to be at for veterinarians to be able to confidently recommend these products to their clients. But at the same time, for the sake of these animals, we want veterinarians being the individuals that are making these recommendations whenever in the future that is appropriate, right? Yeah, the research isn't really there. And the products really aren't being manufactured to the standards that are needed to, to confidently recommend. But right, this is a really important step. We want veterinarians to be those people. We want them to be incentivized and feel comfortable taking their time to research the products that are out there. So that, that's really where I'm coming from when I say I support this provision. And, and sorry, just to jump no, in there, I, I, I love what Jason said, and I think that maybe should have been more of the focus of the article than this knowledge and attitude survey, because it kind of detracted from that, that the point of this legislation. But sorry, Dave. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly, uh, I think that's a really good uh, point to take home. And you know, I think one thing we can probably all agree on is that if we had to pick between the cashier at the Sunoco or the 7-Eleven that's selling the CBD and the veterinarian, we, we really am I'm glad to see that veterinarians are being given that kind of green light and latitude to, to use their expertise um, to the best that they have it to provide this information. And, you know, talking about the public health implications and, you know, the regulation or lack thereof of the CBD in the hemp space really brings me to a great segue to the next article we were going to discuss. And this is almost a tiring thing for me to see. This is what the fifth time in the last 12 months, I think that there's been a series of letters from whether it's the FDA or the FTC, right, the Federal Trade Commission, announcing its crackdown on deceptive marketing claims for CBD products. Uh, you know, we're citing here an article from MJ Biz, as well as um, going straight to the horse's mouth, right, going straight to the FDA. And, and these are easily Googleable when you look at compliance and warning letters, 43 letters. So, you know, another, another series of uh, kind of, you know, false claims being made by companies and uh, the FDA and the FTC cracking down. You know, I'll kind of open up the floor here. Um, you know, Nigam, I don't know if you have any thoughts you want to chime in. You, you obviously do a lot of formulation work and, and you see this and maybe you can build on the chemistry and whatnot. What, what are your thoughts on this latest round? Well, I, I did read that letter that you had shared with us and, you know, it's concerning. We're seeing a lot of claims made. And, you know, I, a lot of times I'm the guy who will be 
you know, not necessarily agreeing with the prohibitionist stance of the federal government. But in this case, I, I, I didn't really have much problem with what the FDA was saying because they were making a lot of claims about like childhood, ADD, ADHD, stuff like this. And then that combined with the lack of quality control, it just, it's it's hard to say anything except for yeah i think the fda was uh, standing on solid ground calling calling this group out and i know they're not alone um so and and i like what you said dave too that sometimes we discuss on here articles that are you know maybe behind a paywall or that are uh, peer reviewed or have a lot of jargon or something in them but this i mean it's it's very straightforward anybody who you know, uses CBD or is interested in cannabis quality could read this and get an idea of some of the uh, pretty valid concerns here, I think. Yeah. And, you know, in particular, right. The, as I was just even just rereading it, as you were talking, one of the biggest concerns I have is, is eye drops. And I think it's easy to over overlook that, but that's a sterile manufacturing process. You know, that that's, <laughs> that's pretty serious. And um, without having, you know, citations and following u.s pharmacopoeia guidelines um that that's a big danger let alone the claims they're making i'm I'm glad you brought that up too because actually interestingly i was just doing some research in the peer-reviewed literature uh for a friend who's trying to use cannabis as medicine uh for for certain purposes uh for an eye related issue and what i saw was that cbd actually does not help with ophthalmic pressure it does not help with glaucoma you actually it's actually thc that helps the cbd is actually not it's not going to work it's it's going to not do what you want so when i saw that in there too i thought wow i was literally just researching this a week ago and they're they're i I don't want to say they're lying to people but the the information is not helpful to someone who needs this for a medical reason yeah david the, the letter you shared uh, that the FDA said to this particular company, honestly, I couldn't believe it. it was one of the the biggest infractions I've ever seen. And in this this late day and age, I mean, people know better. You you know, if you're in this game and you're trying to uh, sell products to people, right? Having CBD on your label, huge mistake. Who's consulting with these people to help them design their label? It's just insane. Uh, and obviously, they need to be working with someone who understands structure, structure, function claims, and how just having links to certain things that may make suggestive discussions is a structure function claim. Like, but again, this one is it's just so bad. The infractions to this particular entity is just this is again it, to me it's hilarious because this is back to like five years ago making the entry level mistakes this person didn't even try uh and the other and yeah the eye drop wow that's an over-the-counter drug i don't know what these people were thinking that you could just produce something that doesn't go through the same manufacturing protocols that you have in order to manufacture over-the-counter drugs this isn't a dietary supplement um so extremely concerning in the respect that People are trying to push the boundaries. Here in the U.S., we kind of work with the, if it's not, it's it's legal until it's illegal. And I think on that double-edged sword, you know, some of these products are going to come back to slap us in the face. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not, Darren, not a bite, I mean, but, and, but a hearty slap, right? <laughs> <laughs> And if you don't under if you don't know what Darwin's talking about regarding structure function claims, give one of us a call. Do some Google, especially if you're um, if you're in this space and you're responsible for what may go on a label. Um, that that's super important. And and at this point, you know, forget all the science and the blasphemy of you know misinformation that that we've highlighted in this article or that the FDA has really called out. Um, you, you need to understand that to start. Um, and uh, Jason, I, I can only imagine that you're sitting there uh, chomping at the bit to give your two cents uh, with your role in public health. So please take take the floor. You all pointed out some really atrocities this company committed, right? And I won't, I won't drop any names, but I think the, the biggest issue I had was that they marketed their CBD products as a treatment for COVID-19. For immediate relief, you can trust blank, full-spectrum CBD. They, they may cite some applicable research, but the way they presented the study findings, it's just downright irresponsible. 
you know, it's unfortunate that businesses often pick and choose research findings and present them out of context to trick consumers into thinking their product claims are supported by research. But like Darwin said, thankfully there are laws that stop these companies. And it's really unfortunate that we see this so much in the hemp derived product industry right now. Yeah, Jehan, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts to kind of round out. I, I, I'm almost stewing even more just, just hearing uh, all this, but I must say, you know, thank you guys for really providing this information because I think it's so so important for the consumers listening to really understand that this is a bit complicated and um, there's some serious Im implications. And while the FDA and the FTC and the government is, you know, they're doing their best job, it's, it's a, it's a full-time job to keep up with these kinds of, you know, social media claims and just egregious uh, statements that can really um, just surprise and take by storm uh, the innocent consumer that doesn't understand this at a fund at a very deep level. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, you know, Jason, I, I love that you called it an atrocity. This is atrocious. I mean, I'm glad that the FDA is finally getting some intestinal fortitude. Someone knows what they're doing at the FDA with this because they turned this company into a yard sale. There is just stuff everywhere nobody wants to touch. Like, oh my God. And to the extent that like almost every statement starts with, um, you know, uh, this is a grave public health concern. This is of concern. This is dangerous. Um, you know, the only thing that would make this worse is if they had a product that required, you know, you drilling into your head and squirting in CBD oil. That's like the <laughs> only thing that's missing from this list of like bad ideas. Um, you know, they, like they, they even Don't give so anybody an idea, Jehan. <laughs> I have the patent on that. Nobody touch it. Um, but like the fact that they have to say your products uh, for human use are not generally recognized as safe and effective for your reference things. Um, you know, it really, I'm really glad to see this. And I just want to say that the FDA even caught their misspellings. Like how poor of a job <laughs> do you have to do to misspell the word feeling? I mean, they literally misspelled feeling great just became that much tastier. They even nailed them on that statement. Um, so, you know, I, I really would like to see more of this. I think this is incredibly inappropriate. And, you know, this doesn't even get to other issues where, you see companies just use terminology incorrectly. And I know I, I'm like been reading a lot about ECS and the skin because I've seen a lot of claims out there and that's a very popular CBD product. But you know, the FDA isn't even addressing the inaccuracies that they have on these products. Like the use of the word transdermal. Sometimes people will say like, oh, we have a transdermal treatment for the skin and it doesn't penetrate. Well, the definition of transdermal is to go systemically and get into the system of your body. So why would you have a transdermal application that doesn't go into the system? It's like, they don't even understand these basic concepts. So I, I'm really glad to see this. I would like to see more of these things because there are good companies out there and, you know, they, these are the people who, you know, they're, they're the turd in the punch bowl. They ruin it for everyone. I have one last thought. Um, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, it's the FDA sending the letters, but it's the FTC actually imposing the fines. And, I, and so that's an interesting point here, right, is that uh, the FDA still hasn't quite gotten to the point to where they're coming in. Because when they come in, you know, they come in in force and shut you down <laughs> with heavy lobbied fines. In this case, I think the FTC is putting in, stepping in first, where you know they're they're trying to put in or or quell some of the profits that have been made off of these claims, whereas the FDA is looking at at initially just halting the claims. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really good point there, Darwin. And um, it's clear that I think we weren't alone with the passion over this article. Uh, obviously, the FDA, uh, the kudos to the folks that that led the the warning letter here. Um, because they, they had just as much of a field day, and rightfully so. I think we're all in agreement. Um, you know, that said, let, let's switch to maybe a, a lighter note. Um, I don't know if that's the right right term, but um, we're, we'll make one one quick article so we can jump into the science and the real fun. So there's a really great article. Jay Hansa has turned me on to the Double Blind Mag, which is one of my favorite uh, reads these days. And there's a great article about uh, what it's like to do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And um, uh, talked about going into kind of a field trip and a day in the life of going into a treatment center, um, also during COVID too, to just add to the fun challenges of, 
of the life we leave these days we lead these days um jason i I know you did some um you did a bit of research um in this during i believe your master's uh, in the ketamine world so what do you kind of want to open up to you to to jump in there what are your thoughts on this article is it a great narrative are there concerns um is it reflective What, what are your thoughts so when I read this article, I really interpreted it as focusing more on the psychoactive experience associated with ketamine consumption and how a therapist-guided ketamine session can more effectively allow an individual to confront past traumas. The clinical trial that I worked on actually tried to rule out any bias associated with psychoactive effects of ketamine by using a benzodiazepine as an active placebo. But having said that, in my opinion, you know, mental health disorders are some of the hardest to treat. And, you know, unfortunately, seeking treatment is often stigmatized. This article discussed someone with uh, body image disorder. And as a registered dietitian, this really hits home for me because while the direct cause of the consequences of the disease are diet-related, the root cause of the person's poor dietary choices are because of the, the mental health problem. And to treat the disease, it isn't just as simple as writing them a meal plan. It's about therapy. So... If ketamine or a therapist's guided ketamine session can help a patient better address the root causes of their you know, body image disorder, I mean, that is amazing. And I totally support that. Man, Jason, you, you unpacked a lot there. Um, and there's so much more we could unpack. I'm really glad to have your, uh, you know, bring back into the, you know, the eating disorder, the registered dietitian side and, and just the complexities of it. Um, Darwin, I know you're the sock of cannabis, but um, perhaps you've got something to, to add here about this this article and the ketamine uh, experience. Yeah, my opinion, maybe that I might be the bad guy in the room in this particular one. And I definitely don't discredit the uh, legitimate uses of psychedelics for mental therapies. I just don't want, uh, I guess, recreational use for the super elite to become uh, a thing. Uh, I I do know of a few retreats where these therapies are being done, but to access them, you got to be in the know, you got to be uber wealthy. And it, it just seems that while in some aspects, it's a legitimate therapy and absolutely needs to be pursued and, and allowed, but I just don't want to see it being uh, taken advantage of. Yeah, no, Darwin, I'm glad you kind of rounded that that point out there. And I know we've discussed this before on the podcast in terms of, you know, capitalism and psychedelics and the movement and, and, and access and social equity. And, and that's, I think, that's a really good good point for us to leave on here. So uh, with that said, this has been a really fun uh, first half. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back for our um, favorite half of the show, perhaps Rapid Fire Science. Hi, this is Teresa Simon, CEO of Physicians Research Center. We provide a number of services, one being a clinical trial center with a network of multi-specialty physicians interested in cannabis research. We also provide consulting services on survey research and epidemiology and health outcomes studies. We are a one-stop shop. Visit us at prctrials.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to our second half of the show, Rapid Fire Science. And uh, today we've got two really exciting articles we want to discuss. Um, the first one, let's just dive right in. Um, Kramer, Kramer et al. from 2020. Um, it's an article titled Chronic Cannabis Consumption and Physical Exercise Performance in Healthy Adults, a Systematic Review. Um, you know, Darwin and I and a few colleagues, uh, we really enjoy what I've been uh, referred to as before as masochism. Um, I, I call it physical exercise. But, um, you know, as I prepare to run my first 50-mile race this summer and I go backcountry skiing with Darwin instead of sitting on the lift chairs um, to get a nice easy breeze up, I can't help but ask, you know, should I taper or step up my cannabis consumption game as I build my workout plan? Um, Darwin, what are your thoughts there in terms of the article and, and this situation? 
I thought the article was interesting in the respect that, uh, you know, it kind of came to the conclusion that there it's, and it was interesting. It's looking at cannabis as a performance enhancement, right? Does it make you as an athlete uh, better than someone who's not on it? Right. And it basically said that it, they, it couldn't really make a conclusion one way or the other uh, and kind of alluding to the fact that they don't consider it per, uh, performance enhancing. And as a, chronic consumer um someone who uh, you know if you were a two pack a day cigarette smoker would maybe be the same in the amount of uh, cannabis that i consume um i think it really comes down to naive, naive versus uh chronic consumers right uh a chronic consumer i don't think it would affect anything at all other than helping you maybe get in the mindset of what you want to be to compete right uh, whether you're going to drop down and uh, take a huge, uh, you know, big air in Winter Olympics, which, you know, obviously can be extremely intimidating. Uh, or if you are in performing in front of thousands of people for the first time, I think in that particular case, what it's doing is just making the athlete get into the zone so that they can do what, you know, they've been training their whole lives to do. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective, Darwin. And you know, it's it's obviously just it's a little bit more complicated than the than the actual effects on the physiological response or the bronchodilation or lack thereof. And there's a lot of mindset and 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 that perspective that that brings it's not the same for everybody either. Um, Jehan, you know, I know you're um, you know thinking about this from a performance enhancing space. I know you follow you know. Ex- Fun, fun sports like the UFC and mixed martial arts a bit, and there's a recent announcement by the UFC to not test for THC anymore. So, what are you, what are your thoughts on this article and um, and in that space? Well, you know, this was an interesting article because it was actually looking at um, a new word for me, which I think um, they use to describe studying, you know, the benefits or sports enhancing effects of cannabis. I think it was ergogenic. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but intended to enhance physical performance, stamina, and recovery. And so, you know, I, I cross-train a lot of stuff and, yeah, follow the combat sports. And in, like, the, the jiu-jitsu community, some people swear by cannabis and CBD. And it's it's a bit of a, you know, there are jiu-jitsu tournaments in, in Vegas or a jiu-jitsu tournament in Vegas where you have to smoke weed before you get on the mat and roll. And the winner gets, like, a pound of cannabis as the, the, the prize. Um and, you know, just from talking with other people that I've rolled with, you know, some of them take edibles before they roll because in some sports, it is an economy of movement and you want to stay calm under pressure and then have that explosive movement. You know, however, I think one thing that might be overlooked in this article is, you know, there, there's training for the sport, for the event, and then there's actually engaging in the thing. Um, so like, I might wonder if there's more of a propensity for non-serious adverse events when you're training versus doing the thing like stubbing your toe, stepping the wrong way, slipping, um, that sort of stuff, you know, might concern me, um, in terms of just, uh, sort of the, you know, improvisation that happens from cannabis use sometimes. Uh, so, you know, I think, this is an interesting space, but I would say, you know, a little bit of caution. Don't just like take an edible and go run a race. You might, you might have a bad time unless you are experienced. And so I would say this comes down to thoughtful cannabis use with these sports. I definitely would not like smoke a joint and then go do some like Muay Thai kickboxing. I, I mean, I would just probably be like, how do I block kicks again? You know, and then I'd be on the floor like counting lights. So I think that it, there is a time and a place, and I think in recovery, it's really important um, as well, because maybe it slows people down a little bit, and maybe it's a good transition for folks. Maybe it helps with sleep and pain, and is a great alternative. So um, yeah, I, I would love to see more work like this, particularly in the longevity. So you're getting traumatic injuries, you're getting micro injuries. Do you get you know your shoulder and hip impingements? Do you have a shorter recovery time with that? Like think about the head and trauma uh, injuries that that happen in these sports is that um, that recovery time going to be decreased? Can there be a protective effect? And those are the types of questions I have after this article. You know, I think it was interesting. They ve- they measured a couple things. The methods seem pretty good. Um, they even had a what I love is figure one, very important. I immediately discredit any review study that does not 
like show what studies they include or exclude in a review. And I love the fact that they include it. And you'll find a lot in the cannabis literature that sometimes people don't tell you how they selected studies for their review. It's just like, we just chose stuff at random to shove it in your face. Um, so this has a lot of great review articles um, in it, a lot of great original research that they cite and mention. So as I'm a true nerd, as some of you will appreciate, check out some of their references that they cite. There's some really cool stuff on the cardiovascular effects of cannabis, cool stuff on sports, science, and cannabis use in THC. Yeah, thanks, Jehan. There, there's, um, I, I will go to Nigam before we end um, to discuss kind of the sample size and their methodology there. But before, before I do, you know, want to trans bring it over to Jason and you know just tie back a couple of the things that you know you and you and Darwin said there, Jehan and Darwin, which is you know looking at is it naive versus chronic use? Is it you know and what's the intention and what what what's it being used for? And to your point, you know maybe something where you really need to be sharp, laser focused, you know, kickboxing, my time, um, you know, et cetera, uh, high performance martial arts versus uh, something where it's used in recovery or for the mindset when you're in front of uh, 5,000 people. Um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to really consider there and just being mindful of what you're doing and getting into with any drug, whether it's a over the counter uh, alcohol um, or any sort of substance. Um, Jason, you must have something to add here. Uh, go on, jump in. Yeah, I, I think Jehan, you made some excellent points. Uh, the definitely the type of I, I actually have a personal story I should say just because this might give me a little bit of bias, but this was many years ago. But I was out rock climbing, and you know my partner was smoking weed, and he was upsetting an anchor, and he didn't set the sling right. And fortunately, you know, I mean. Well, unfortunately, I was climbing, but fortunately, I fell really low on the climb, and I dropped maybe you know five, six feet. It wasn't a big deal, but you know, it was because he set the sling wrong, and I can't say it was because he was intoxicated or if it's because he just didn't know how to set the sling, sling properly, whatever. But it was just um, it was a really scary moment, and you know, after that point, I chose never to consume cannabis or any other drugs that could intoxicate me before I was climbing, whether it was indoors or outdoors. So having said that, I do support what Jayon said, where, you know, there are a lot of physiological effects that can happen if you consume cannabis after you exercise or work out that can really support you in a, in a training regimen. So yeah, no, I'm actually really glad you said that. You know, I'm an amateur rock climber, but you know, really what you speak to is is life life critical uh, scenarios, right? And life life safety. And if you have to make sure you're on belay and that ropes are tied correctly, and that you know certain things that could actually impact your life if not done correctly, and you need to be fully focused and present. Um, perhaps it's worth you know reconsidering whether you're going to uh, at what time you're going to consume. <clears throat> And uh, really, just being aware of that. Um, no, thanks for that story, um, Nigam. I want to let you give a chance to chime in here before we move on to our, our final article here. A any thoughts? Um... Yeah, I, um, I I like the people are talking about this. I, I think it's important. I think we're seeing, as you had mentioned previously, like UFC is no longer touching or testing for THC. I believe NBA is also not. So we're seeing this kind of roll back and then there's also this culture and and folks who have been following it or have a personal interest will be aware i mean there's been a culture in professional sports at least in the u.s that i'm aware of for a long time nfl nba players using cannabis for recovery and even this um using it uh I, i'm gonna like go to a different thing that'll, that'll relate it's kind of funny about cannabis um and how it's been this sort of counterculture against so many like bad things that are happening so think about like federal prohibition of cannabis but of course opioids are being pushed down people's throats and the counterculture kind of understand intuitively it wasn't about the law using plant medicine using cannabis was just better they kind of did it underground they did it themselves they handled it in that way so in the sports arena we saw the same thing where you hear these horror stories of professional athletes and um, there's a lot of money motivation. I mean, there's a lot of money on the line in the NBA, the NFL, the UFC, especially on these star athletes. So you have their trainers and their coaches pushing um, 
a solution down their throat, be that a, you know, an opioid or some other pharmaceutical pill that may be having harsh effects on the liver, the kidneys, and so on and so forth. So it's interesting that even within these highest levels of professional sports in the United States, you had this little counterculture of the players who intuitively understood, oh, it's okay. I'll just like dump the pills and I'll just smoke after practice or I'll take my edibles after practice or whatever. And I've even heard, I'm not going to like name names, uh, but I'm sure we've all seen these in the news, retired players or other people coming out and saying, oh, I used to smoke before every single game. And these were like star NBA players and stuff like that. So anyways, um, I think you guys are catching my vibe, but I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm glad we're talking about it. And I'm very happy to see these kind of repeals coming from major sporting bodies in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well said, Nigam, and thanks for running that out. Um, you know, so as we switch to our, our final article of the rapid fire science here, you know, I just want to kind of take a moment to thank you guys, listeners, A, and of course, Nigam and Jehan for letting me lead today. But, you know, second, there's a lot of science we're covering here. And there's um, an over, even for me, an overwhelming amount of, of you know, expertise and in, in topics in this room. And, you know, for the average reader or listener that maybe doesn't have a, as formal of a science background and doesn't eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff, you know, really the scientific process, just so critically thinking and, you know, take some of these topics and, and reflect on them and think about how that can apply in your life and, you know, go go Google and, and search more. Use the links uh, that, you know, we cited all the links to the pod, to the articles and the uh, news articles that we covered today. Um, there's a lot of good stuff here and I think you can really benefit from. So, you know, thanks again for listening. Um, let, let's go into the second article here. And this is, you know, a bit more of a, I'd say, academic science perspective. Um, I think it's, uh, personally, I'm, I was really excited to see this article. And so I'm excited to share it because folks don't, there's so many factors with shelf life and stability that's overlooked. And, you know, when you go to the grocery store, you grab your milk and it has an expiration date on it. <clears throat> you grab your NASA meal ready to eat to your backpackers food and it's got an expiration date as well. That's about 30 years versus three weeks and um, for valid reasons, right? Safety and change of the product from the original specifications within a certain tolerance. And so th- this article came out of Canada fairly recently here in 20, early 2021. And you know, they looked at the different cannabinoids. They monitored them um, over a period of time at different temperatures between negative 20 degrees centigrade or um, really cold to um, 40 degrees Fahrenheit w- uh, centigrade, which is you know, a bit above the human body temperature, about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And, um, you know, I think there's some some really interesting takeaways here. Um, Darwin, you, you speak in the space looking at, you know, the real minute details of the, the glandular trichomes, you know, the actual micro size, um, you know, particles and in the cannabis plant that actually uh, harnesses the cannabinoids and you know builds them through the biosynthetic pathways. W- w- what did you make of this article? What's what's your thoughts? Oh well, <laughs> I did manage to read it right before uh, the uh, the podcast, which is great. Um, so I managed to kind of see the study's uh, conclusions and things. Honestly, I thought it was a a good step in the right direction. I agree with the uh, authors of the study that it helps. It will help with the standardization. Of, of of shelf life of, of and um, storage specifications for cannabis flowers in particular to help maintain their quality. Um, it's I think it was uh, certainly interesting, right? That it, it didn't necessarily provide with a um, recommendation on shelf life, but more or less just comparing uh, a new approach to the uh, um, uh, to the estimate of how long cannabis flowers would uh, maintain their quality. And in this particular case, they were looking at, you know, potency or cannabinoid content, right, as the quality metric that they were following. Um, So it's great that it both supports, um, you know, original uh, or older estimates that were out and provides us with a more accurate, uh, potentially, assessment for how to determine uh, or potentially determine the stability of these molecular constituents over time, uh, which will hopefully help us in the ASTM international world on the D37 Committee for Cannabis to create some standards, uh, maybe around some of this data, or at least this is a good stepping point, you know, starting point for us to maybe establish some metrics for 
uh, shelf life for cannabis flower. I think it's very interesting that these particular products are allowed to be sold on the marketplace uh, without any shelf life data. And all you have to say is that you didn't do a stability test, you know? And so depending on which marketplace you're in, right? Uh, so I think this will help us in establishing those shelf life information and provide us with mechanisms for uh, determining what those should be. Yeah, no, thanks, Darwin. Um, you know, the, the stability, uh, working with, you know, the Consensus Standards Development Organization, ASTM, where we've got, what, a thousand members across 30 countries that are really working to help develop and guide regulators, right? That's that's part of the main audience through the standards development process to to give them insight on how to ensure that these products are consistent and safe. And you know, with that said, I wanted to get, jump to Jason. Uh, you've obviously worked with, um, you know, specifically the Maryland uh, Cannabis uh, Commission, and uh, you know, your work at the Public uh, Health Institute. What are the what are the takeaways? What should how should this be translated to regulators? Is this something that regulators really need to jump on um, and, you know, and or what are the public health implications that you see here? Well, there are a lot, right? If a product says that it's going to provide five milligrams of THC per serving, the consumer expects that they rely on that. And, you know, I think the, the bigger problem is if they had the first time they ever use a product and it claims that it has five milligrams of THC. And in reality, because it's been sitting on the shelf for, six months, it doesn't have that much. So then the kind of effects from that amount of THC may not be that they think is, you know, this is the effects from five milligrams of THC may actually be the effects from three milligrams of THC. So then they go and buy a product with 10 milligrams of THC, and it's actually much more you know, potent than they expected. So that's really where some of the, the kind of public health implications are, especially with a lot of this, you know, normalization of consuming cannabis and then going and going and doing stuff, kind of right. We were just talking about consuming cannabis before you go and you know exercise or do some other physical activity, right? So that's part of it. And echoing what Darwin said, I mean, he's absolutely right. Where a lot of states don't require stability studies, they they don't require that, and. Some people are putting, you know, cannabis flower out on the market and saying, oh, it has a one-year shelf life, right? But yeah, very important, very timely article. And I definitely think that regulators across the country should should consider this when establishing regulations for, for shelf life of cannabis products. Yeah, no, no, thanks. Um, so I know we're running short on time here, but um, Jehan, you had a quick thought. Um, jump in there. Yeah, first of all, you know, agree with... Um, Jason's comments, like what Darwin had to say. And the only thing I'll add, just to be different and maybe take a slightly juxtaposition, you know, counter approach is, hey, maybe nature does it better. Um, when we think about cannabis flowers being trimmed or untrimmed or processed, uh, I've always kind of thought that when cannabis is in its natural state and dry and preserved, that the, you know, the waxy trichomes and the fan leaves act as sort of nature's little box to store these delicate compounds that can react with light and other stuff. You know, and they found cannabis in a tomb in China that was like you know, almost 3,000 years old, and there was still detectable THC. And even in pictures in the article, you could see, you know, uh, resin still on it. And so, yeah, stored under the right conditions, I agree that there's going to be loss. But um, these things can be kind of like rocks if stored at, under the right conditions. But you know, Darwin, you being you know a big like trichome head, like this is like your field. I wonder if you could. I would just be interested to get your response, kind of to um, storing trimmed flowers, storing them untrimmed for, for long periods of time. What is would that make a difference um, in this study, perhaps? So that's a, you know that's a good question. Um, what they we're studying in this case, right, was a homogenized sample. So it would be interesting if they were studying uh, whole flower versus ground. Um, you know, to your point, right, uh, the glandular trichromes are an awesome feat of nature. And what they what they do for us is amazing. Um, I like to call them spaceships. Uh, and because they, you know, they, they form this awesome little bulb that keeps all of our astronauts safe. In this case, our terpophenolic secondary metabolites, you know, our terpenes and our cannabinoids. And 
once you have cured that flower or those glandular heads, you allow them to kind of lock them into place and it keeps all of our astronauts safe. But if you rupture that spaceship, you know, and what happens, your astronauts get, you know, they, they're not, they don't do good, right? They have a bad time. <laughs> so uh, I think it's, you know, it's important to maintain the structural integrity of uh, the glandular heads, since that's what you're trying to preserve, which has the cannabinoids. So if you're looking to preserve them for the longest period of time, you want to be able to do it in a way, right, that maintains their structure. Because, uh, if you, again, if you rupture your glands, uh, you're, you're going to have a bad time. Man, uh, this is great. And uh, the analogy, I love it, Darwin. So thank you so much for, for that, that insight. Um, and I will fly off into a great spaceship later, and we will all enjoy the rest of our day um, safely um, encapsulated. Uh, so, you know, that said, let's, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to take a quick and final break uh, before we come to the third and final half of our show with a fun little game. Stay tuned. At Marku and Aurora, we leverage our deep experience in science and fundamental research to advise industry leaders and corporate teams. If you would like to open a discussion, please reach out to us using the contact form on our website. That's M-A-R-C-U-A-R-O-R-A dot com. Enjoy the rest of the show. Hello and welcome back, everybody. This is your guest moderator today, Dave Valencourt of GMP Collective. And uh, we're going to wrap it out. Uh, no how to launch an industry would be complete without a game. And this is for the grand prize of advancing scientific knowledge. Today's game is, is kind of a play on two truths and a lie. Um, I will admit that I'm, I'm not usually, I'm the game player. I usually like to be the banker in Monopoly. But today I'm going to give it my best here. And we're going to play with some fun facts. So there's going to be two questions. There are two statements I'm going to give to you guys, the audience, as well as, of course, our panelists. And uh, I'm going to give you three things to choose from. One of them is incorrect, but the other two are true answers or statements. And uh, we'll give the participants a bit of time to kind of discuss, come up with uh, what they believe is the incorrect answer, um, whether it's consensus or individual answers. So um, without further ado, any questions? Or uh, should we jump in, guys? Let's go. do it. All right, no pressure. So, all right, the first statement here. The first deal um, that was facilitated by a computer network is reported to have involved marijuana um, or cannabis. And it was between two different schools that were involved. I'm gonna list three schools um, and universities. Which, which university was not involved in this transaction of cannabis? Was it... Stanford University? Was it MIT or the Massachusetts Institute of Technology? Or was it Harvard University? So um, two of these, uh, you obviously need a, a buyer and a seller. So one of them was the purported buyer. One of them was the purported seller um, purchasing cannabis through the internet for the first time something was ever sold. And uh, which, which, which two universities was it? Or should I say which university was it not? Your options are Stanford, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or Harvard? Gosh. Wait, uh, can you wow. say the beginning thing again? The What was the computer part? Yeah, so when when the internet first came about, it was actually, um, I don't want to give too much away, but it was uh, ARPANET, I believe is the term. The, uh, some, some you know computer science nerds, I don't even know if it was called computer science back then, um, wanted to connect two different universities and see what they could do, and it was around the sale of, uh, of cannabis. So let me, let me say, so if I got this, this David, is there were two schools involved. There was a computer program to facilitate the sale of drugs. And one of these schools was not involved out of Stanford, Harvard, and exactly. MIT. Gosh, and, you, you yep. know, I, I think, um, I, I wonder, um, 
you know, I'm guessing it's going to be the elite school is going to be the one that is buying the drugs. That would be me. I'm just thinking they got the money. A lot of them are going to be lawyers. Every lawyer I know smokes pot. So <laughs> I would say it'd have to be like a heavy law school. Um, that, you know, so I, I'm, I'm going to say that I think uh, Harvard was uh, buying the pot. You know, that's going to be that's that's what I think. I'm unsure of who was selling it. You know, um, Stanford and MIT both have great like computer programs. Um, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Let someone else someone else wants to jump in. I have one point of clarification, uh, David. You mentioned yeah. that this was a the first internet transaction. Yes, I guess as we can we can define the internet in the 70s. Yeah. Right. So okay, good. So you answered you gave you gave me time frame. So I was wondering if this was still when it was a military uh, uh, secret, uh, you know, it was still being developed. So in the 70s is when this occurred. Correct. Correct. Mm. That was also the time where I think it was still legal to drive around drinking beer and smoking joints, right? In the car. So what a great so. time and, for and you public could still health. Be 18 to do that too. <laughs> Can you give us any more of a hint as to what the purchase was for, like for what the study was going to be about or why anything like that? Yeah, I'm it was really um, just good. Oh, sorry. I would say, yeah, I'm kind of confused if this is like a research oriented thing or if this is like some, you know, early computer scientists or like, Hey, hey, man, you know, think about like the story of like Alexander Graham Bell, like made the first call on the phone and there's like some famous story. I'm like, mm -hmm. is it some guy who's like the first Internet call was like or the first Internet message was like, hey, man, can you send a couple joints down yeah. the street from Harvard? It's like, it's like it's like if Shell Silverstein recorded the first like phonograph instead of, you know, it's like <laughs> like singing about like, hey, can someone show me how to roll a joint? Hey, listen to this. I record myself saying this. Yeah, um, so Dave, can you? Uh, I don't know if that's going to give it away, but can you clarify? Yeah. Is it like a research thing, or is it like a "Hey, can I get a joint" thing? It, it was uh, it was tied to research in terms of uh, it was an artificial intelligence lab that was part of it, and so they were like, "How? What can we, you know, set up a transaction? We want to do something nominal, but um, yeah, we want to do some sort of transaction. What should we establish for the transact? What should the transaction be about?" And they chose weed. Um, Jason. I'm going to guess that Stanford was the one not involved. And this is only based on the fact that MIT and Harvard are relatively close to one another. So I, mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, they Geographic. would be more likely to be like, oh, hey, homie's over at MIT. Can we like do this internet transaction and, rather than like Stanford doing it in, from California all the way to to Massachusetts? So. Yeah, that's, that's, so, I think Stanford's on that wasn't involved. I think I'm ready so, to, to, to put my guess out there officially, yep. and, and you know, um, and the, I don't think I'm going to change it. But um, so if we're talking about two schools selling weed to each other, I'm going to say, you know, similar to Jason, what is um, uh, Harvard and MIT? That would be my, I'm going to go with that and, and say that Stanford is. To, you know, for whatever reason, not cool not enough. <laughs> you know, they're a bummer to hang okay. out with those Stanford kids. You know, so Stanford was not involved. Uh, is what Jason's thing. Uh, Jahan is thinking as well as Jason. Uh, Jason, particularly based on geography. Darwin, I saw you chime in, guessing that Harvard was not involved. Uh, Nigam, uh, your your thoughts before I give you the answer in the reference. I, I want to have some like romanticized vision of this moment that it was like. It was coming from California going east, as so many amounts of cannabis have over time. <laughs> That's actually a great point, Nigam. That is a really good yeah. point. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to say, um, hmm, I don't know if Harvard or MIT was buying, but I would like to think that Stanford was sending it. That's my kind of half. <laughs> All right. Half so, well, half before, I guess before you give us the answer, David, well, I just my yeah. reasoning for why I chose uh, Stanford and MIT is because you said this was an artificial intelligence study between on an, uh, a network between uh, two entities that didn't a network that didn't exist yet. So I'm thinking, okay, technical universities, Harvard is not. Mm. Okay, I'm with Darwin. Well, I'm with Darwin. Stanford, MIT. I'll, I'll guess that. <laughs> I, yeah, I think so, MIT definitely was 
uh, the sort the of putting story. the so Craigslist ad up there. That's my reasoning. Uh, <laughs> to use the parlance of our time. And, and I think, you know, Harvard was, those kids were like, who else would have computers, access to computers at the time, you know? But so um, that's great so reasoning, indeed, Darwin. I like um, that. Yeah, so Darwin, you're spot on. It was um, purported to be between Stanford as, yes, well, the West Coast seller to the nerds at MIT receiving, uh, and Harvard was um, not involved. Oh, man. Yeah, nobody, wants to, nobody wants to smoke that Harvard weed, man. That's, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> that's I get, all my, weed, oh, I get that... all my weed from Mississippi or Stanford, I guess. Right. So, that's Darwin, I think you, you really won that, and I'm looking forward to what you're going to, uh, where you're going to use your scientific uh, award points for. And that. Well, I, I get uh, to Nigga? donate them? Yes. 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 If you have a group. Yeah. Oh. Um, email email the Smithsonian and the, tell them you won the game. <laughs> that was really cool, David. Uh, that really threw me for a loop, yeah. man. I, that was really good. Well, everybody, thanks for joining. That was our show. Um, really appreciate you clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you're uh, hearing this today. We really appreciate it. Um, hope you enjoyed letting me stand in as the guest moderator. Well. Jehan and Nigam were virtually on assignment in the other side of the seat. And um, of course, a special thanks to our trusty audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. Have a great day and thank you guests, Jason as always, and Darwin for uh, Spock of Canvas for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.